This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off your order, go to awaytravel.com fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com fool, promo code fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. It's March 17th, and we're wrapping up South by Southwest with a discussion of equity crowdfunding. While I was in Austin, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Slava Rubin, who is the founder of Indiegogo, one of the most popular crowdfunding platforms out there, and Bill Clark, founder and CEO of MicroVentures, which is basically a hybrid investment bank and venture capital firm. We're gonna play that interview for you today, before we get into it, I just want to give you a little background on equity crowdfunding, the topic we're going to be talking about. Equity crowdfunding was enabled by the JOBS Act, and the legislation relevant to the conversation we're going to have took effect in 2016. Basically, what it did was allow high-growth private companies to offer securities to the average investor. Previously, you had to be what they call an accredited investor to have access to these opportunities. And you can think of accredited investors as basically high-net-worth individuals. So these investments are a relatively new option for most investors, and they're a lot different than owning stock in a publicly traded company. We haven't really spent all that much time talking about them here at The Fool, so I thought it'd be really great to hear about what's going on in equity crowdfunding from Bill and Slava. I hope you enjoy the show. We're going to talk through equity crowdfunding a little bit. That's what both of you guys were here to talk about at South by Southwest. But before we get into it, I think it'd be really great to get your personal stories, how both of you arrived at this space, because I'm sure it's a little bit different. Slava, you want to start first? Sure. So we came up with the idea for Indiegogo back in uh, the fall of 2006. We actually had the original intent to right away do equity crowdfunding before uh, crowdfunding was a word and equity crowdfunding was a concept. We want to be able to democratize access to investments and let anybody put up ideas and let uh, others invest. We right away learned uh, through our research the regulatory hurdles and the issues there. So we then pivoted towards more of what is now called a perks-based approach where there's no actual investment, and we launched that in January 2008. Uh, we got rejected by 93 VCs, and then we were able to get some momentum, and I guess the rest is history. We've now distributed well over a billion dollars all over the world and had over half a million different entrepreneurs raise money. And uh, we've always really wanted to do equity crowdfunding. In 2012, we were a part of pushing forward the JOBS Act and getting that all signed. And then we worked with FINRA and the SEC to get all the rules figured out. And then in 2016, the JOBS Act went live with Reg CF, Title III, uh, crowdfunding. And uh, we then partnered with MicroVentures to create uh, First Democracy VC to uh, empower Title III deals. And we launched that on November 15th. So one way of looking at it is saying that it's brand new for us. Another way of looking at it is we've been in beta for about 10 years and that we're finally able to do what we really wanted to do, which was to give entrepreneurs access to uh, investment capital and get others to participate in the upside. But even more interesting is to democratize that investment opportunity where all 100%, not just the 1% accredited investors are able to invest. Uh, anybody is able to get into these uh, really interesting deals and have access to things that they never could have done before. And what about yourself, Bill? So my path to equity crowdfunding really started when I was working at Dell Financial Services. I was in credit risk management, and back in 2007 and 2008, we were cutting credit lines for small businesses. And I really wanted to help those businesses and try to figure out another way to 
get them capital. And so I started thinking about that and looking at Prosper.com Lending Club and looking at the peer-to-peer model and and really model a potential business off of that. And so in 2009, I founded MicroVentures, not even knowing if I could do what I wanted to do. I started going down the, the debt model side just because that was what Lending Club and Prosper were doing. Uh, but they started to have some issues with the SEC, and I found out that it was going to be a lot more expensive to go down that path. So then I went to the equity side, realized that if if we wanted to do that and make money at it, we were going to have to become a broker-dealer. So the broker-dealer path took a little while. It took about a year, and we kind of figured it all out by um, January of 2011. And then we, were, we launched uh, January 1st, 2011, as the what we thought were, was the first broker dealer to be doing equity crowdfunding, and at the time it wasn't equity crowdfunding, and obviously now equity crowdfunding is a little bit different because back then we were only allowing accredited investors to participate. So we did that successfully over the last six years. We raised about a hundred million dollars, but in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, we're limiting this to, you know, one to 2% of all investors and how do we give everyone access? And so when the opportunity with, with the Jobs Act and Title III came, we knew it was something that we were going to get into and partnering with Indiegogo to create First Democracy VC was the right step for us to get exposure for investors and to, to market the deals properly. And, and that's where we're at today. And so I think for both of you, it's pretty clear that this has been something that's been on your radar and something that you've been pushing for quite some time. I think maybe within the more casual investment community, this is something that's kind of just coming into the consciousness, right? It's something that just pe- people are just becoming aware of. And so you mentioned the, the Jobs Act and the passage, and you know, we go from having these accredited investors to having um, everyone be able to participate. You want to talk a little bit about how some of these placements um, are different than investing in traditional stocks and, and kind of some things that people that aren't as familiar with the history might want to know about. Yeah, so the I mean, the main difference is the liquidity of an, an investment in a private company. So when you invest in Apple, three day, you know, a day later, you could sell your you could sell your stock on the same day and get liquidity. But in these companies, you can't get liquidity for a while. It could be seven to 10 years. And sometimes um, we're also doing revenue share type opportunities where you can get your money back sooner, assuming that the company is successful. Uh, and then in the private market, early stage startups are risky. And so seven out of 10 are going to fail and you need to diversify, which is why we like the minimums at $100. While it is a lot of money, um, it's it's not as much as like for our microventures main business, 5000 is is the minimum. So try to give people the opportunity to diversify. And then, you know, in VC, it's not necessarily spray and pray, but it's diversify so that the losers, so the winners will make up for the losers. And so that's what we try to do with, with our investment opportunities. Yeah, I, I think the idea of diversifying is something that most investors are familiar with, but I think it's probably even more important with these types of investments just because of the risk profile with some of them. Um, I'm guessing that in some ways, maybe this is the right way to think about it, Bill, you're kind of a gatekeeper for the platform and, and there's the due diligence element um, before any of these companies can come and, and kind of 
uh, be available as investments. You want to talk a little bit about what that process looks like? Sure. So I also think, you know, for the business that we've been in for the last six years, we were even more of a gatekeeper. So we were building a a pro, sorry, a portfolio of companies similar to a VC because we have assets under management and we were very selective of the companies with title three. We can, we don't have to only focus on tech companies. We can look at restaurants if we want. We can look at distilleries. We can look at movies. And so that is something that we never looked at before. And so we're able to actually provide more of a diversification to investors, but really from a, um, gatekeeper standpoint what we like to do is really just filter the companies for investors to say these are companies we feel are a good potential opportunity and then it's your job to do due diligence on it yourself so we will look at the team and we'll run background checks on them we'll look at financials and projections and we'll look at valuation and we'll put all that together in a summary and then we'll allow the investors to do their own due diligence and then they can ask questions of the company and then the founders will answer so the crowd does have the ability to ask questions and if the crowd doesn't like something it won't get funded because when you see those questions coming and and maybe it's negativity in the discussion board people were people will do their research and they'll check it out so uh, yeah. oh, sorry, the, and on the Indiegogo platform, it's always been open, um, no application, um, no human curation. We try to have it as scalable as possible. Obviously, as we move into equity, we both are get being regulated um, to make sure that we're filtering, but we also need to make sure we're creating a high integrity product early. So it's really great to use the scalable techniques of Indiegogo as well as the curation capabilities of micro ventures to bring this all to bear into First Democracy VC, which is a constant balancing act because we only want to present the deals that we think uh, have been filtered well to be presented, but we also want it to be as scalable as possible and to have as many deals as possible because the goal is to democratize the opportunities. So it's a constant balancing act. Right. It's it's increasing uh, access to capital, right, at the end of the day for businesses. Um, Bill, you mentioned distilleries, and actually I was checking out Indiegogo's platform. Republic Restoratives is a D.C. distillery, and my friends have been telling me that I need to get there. It is a one that has been funded via equity crowdfunding. So I thought that was pretty cool. What kind of businesses are you seeing in this space? Is there any constant theme or is it kind of all over the place? We've actually uh, purposely tried to be across the board. Uh, we just launched on November 15th and it's very early in the whole industry. And for us, it's uncertain where we'll be able to focus and optimize the most. We want to see that different verticals are working or not working. So far, we've been lucky enough to be eight for eight for the deals that we posted, and we just recently posted a ninth deal, but it really has been on purpose to go across the various verticals. Like Bill mentioned, we've had a hardware project uh, called Play Impossible. We've had an internet company called BeatStars, a movie called Field Guide for Evil, a video game uh, named Crowfall, uh, Artcraft Entertainment. We've had uh, things that are more local, so we've had a restaurant and coffee shop, Texas Zebo, um, the distillery, and uh, some others. So I think it's early. Uh, we're not even a half year old yet. So we're still really wanting to experiment and see uh, how our audiences are reacting. And overall, it's been very positive. I do think 
in time you'll see more focus whether it's from the industry or from our partnership but uh, for now it's really good to get all this learning um, one thing I'm kind of curious about, uh, kind of on the same note, is you know we are still very much in the early innings. You know, with with equity crowdfunding, we're about to lap a year basically at this point, right? Um, do you have any early indications or or kind of interesting data points, maybe what possible deal activity looks like or what investor appetite looks like? I think that from the investor appetite, just even from our own platform, it's across the board. So. Like Slava mentioned, with the Field Guide to Evil, our first movie, we we wanted to raise five hundred thousand, and we were able to hit that. I think eleven days early, wow. and so um, it's still up, but uh, because of regulations, we have to keep it up for the full amount of time, even though it's already hit its its deadline. And so, you know, on the movie side, we're you know we obviously saw the demand there from the restaurant side. It's great demand that um, that they just didn't have that type of access to capital before so we're excited about that so it's very early from microventures core business on the tech side that's what we've done mainly and so um you know seeing seeing that expand into other verticals is great um i think from the the company side it's we're seeing companies from all over and and so we'll like slava mentioned we'll look at anything and we'll learn from it and we'll decide if it's a good fit but really if it makes sense for investors and there's a potential for them to make money then we will we'll try it and see if it's um and when i say try it i mean do due diligence on it and see if if we think it's a good opportunity for investors and then we'll learn from their comments and feedback and so far it's been like you mentioned open for like nine months three quarters and I think the numbers are around uh, 250 deals that have been posted and uh, just around 40% that have hit their targets. On Indiegogo, we're pretty excited or so far to still be 100% hitting their targets. Um, and we've seen demand on the investor side from many different states and uh, it's from a wide range of demographics. So it's pretty interesting to see that it's um, broad appeal one thing I've been kind of curious about with this is with people no longer having to be accredited investors, um, you know, that definitely lowers the barrier for who can participate. And have you seen a shift in demographics with who's actually interested or is it that 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 hurdle isn't there anymore, but it's still largely high net worth individuals, people that would be accredited investors anyways? It it has shifted for Title Three. It's across the board. It's It's people that are considered sophisticated in the terms of the SEC all the way to accredited, it, it doesn't really matter anymore. The one thing that we learned at MicroVentures was if you allow non-accredited investors to participate, they ask a lot of questions. They ask more questions than an accredited investor. That might be because they have more to lose from a net worth standpoint, but it's great to see that they will do that due diligence and just go above and beyond to actually do the due diligence on a company. So we are seeing increased activity, uh, even on calling in and asking questions specifically about the process, not necessarily the companies, because unfortunately we can't talk about the companies due to the rules. Um, but 
we are educating people on a daily basis and this like you said this is early innings and it's all about education and making sure that they understand the risk and i believe truly that the investors that come to the platform do understand the risk because we put it everywhere we've got an education section we check they have to check boxes and read things that say you can you know don't invest if you can't afford to lose this money um, what are some common questions that you hear i mean the basics are as easy as when will I get my money back? Um, how much can I invest? How do I know if it's a good company or not? I mean, some of it's just as straightforward as that. What does RevShare really mean? Yeah. What's a CrowdSafe note, which is what we've been using to, to raise money. And it's it's just the easiest explanation is it's just like a convertible note, but it just stays uh, as debt until there's a liquidity event. You guys have mentioned RevShare a couple times. Is that something that a lot of companies are interested in or is the thought that they want to be holding on to revenue to be able to fuel growth? That's definitely a balancing act that we review and assess in due diligence if a company does want to do RevShare. We are very interested in RevShare because it gives the liquidity options for an investor where they can get their money back a lot faster, but we'll only do it if it makes sense. So if a company can afford to, to, to carve out one to 10%, whatever the amount is and pay that back to investors, then we'll run the numbers and make sure that we feel like it's a good opportunity. But yeah, I think that one investors are interested in that because if they're investing in equity, the average is going to be seven, seven years plus before you get your money back. But, and you should balance and do diversification and and invest in some of those companies if you feel comfortable. But then you should also look at rev share opportunities as well as a way to potentially get some of that money back sooner as long as the company's successful. So yeah, we, we like it. And I think that it will have a definite place in, um, in our fundraising. Republic Restorative did uh, rev share. Well, that was the first half of our chat, but we also talked about the startup scene in Austin and what the future might hold for equity crowdfunding. We're going to get back to that in a second. Just going to take a little break to thank our supporter, Away. Away makes affordable, high-quality suitcases that charge your phone and start at just $225. By cutting out the middleman, Away is able to offer the perfect luggage with high-quality materials and a much lower price, especially compared to some of those similar-quality luxury competitors. The luggage comes in at a variety of sizes and colors, and they all cost less than 300 bucks. Two USB ports and a high-capacity battery allow you to charge multiple devices on the go. Think phones, tablets, laptops, you name it. So you never have to worry about a dead phone or fight for an outlet at the airport. It also comes with lifetime warranty. If anything breaks, Away will fix or replace for life. And they offer a risk-free 100-day trial period. If at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund. Man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, was able to enjoy some of the perks of Away Luggage. What did you think, Dan? Oh, man. So I don't know if you've told your listeners yet, but we had somewhat of a tumultuous flight to Austin from Washington, D.C. I gave them my perspective when I talked with Gabby, but I think they'd love to hear yours. Well, planes were breaking. People were getting real mad. But guess what, Dylan? My phone stayed charged because I was able to use your away bag to keep it charged. And I could while away the hours looking at Twitter that we spent in the St. Louis airport, even though we only spent like 20 20 minutes there. It wasn't too bad. Long enough for a beer. Long enough for a beer and a little bit of charge on the phone. And it was perfect 
because my phone didn't die. But not everyone's lucky enough to have a friend with away luggage. No, I'm a very lucky individual, Dylan. I've been saying that to you all week as we share our hotel room in Austin, Texas. I really appreciate that, Dan. You don't sound sarcastic at all. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> if you're interested in giving away a shot, uh, they also offer free shipping anywhere in the continental United States. And Away has a special offer for our dozens of listeners. You can get $20 off when you go to awaytravel.com slash fool and use the promo code fool at checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash fool, promo code fool. Within the, the VC space and, and maybe even in the, the equity crowdfunding space, any trends that you guys have noticed? You know, I know, like I said, it's early, but uh, anything that you've kind of seen emerge so far? Well, before you even go to the equity crowdfunding space, what you've noticed on the perks crowdfunding with Indiegogo in the early days, uh, VCs would look down on an opportunity on Indiegogo and then slowly they would take notice. And now it's almost become like a standard approach to first maybe further validate your idea is to go through a perks-based campaign on Indiegogo or we become a discovery engine for a lot of VCs and institutions now. So there's been well over a billion dollars of venture capital and institutional money that has gone into companies that have first funded on Indiegogo. So funny again, Republic Restorative, just an example, (laughs) they first did Indiegogo perks, got off the ground, and then could have gone towards a few different paths to get more institutional money, but then they came on to uh, our partnership for equity raise. So it's just an interesting example of kind of the graduation from one to the next. And then as it relates to equity crowdfunding and the trends related to the VCs and such, um, I think we're seeing it as quite complementary, and VCs are seeing it as another opportunity. I do see in the future, I think where this is evolving, is some VCs will again use it as a validation element, or even more interesting will be as the total raise, let's call it 100%, a portion of that total raise will be carved out and said, okay, the VCs took 70% of it, here's 20% of it, put it on uh, equity crowdfunding so we can engage our fans, our audience, our customers and get them more involved. Um, So I can see this being a complimentary thing. Yeah, it, the way you're describing it, it sounds like the traditional crowdfunding where, you know, you give $20 and you get a t-shirt or you give a larger amount and maybe get an early prototype um, is kind of a court of public opinion on the concept itself. Well, that's for perks. Right, for the perks space. And then that helps for the VCs to jump in. But then I also think the VCs will want to give a portion of the venture round to us to then distribute it through our unaccredited uh pool to be able to get more people involved especially their customers bill you're you're local to austin Uh, so um i'm guessing that this is something that is uh super relevant to to the austin community just because there's such a burgeoning tech scene here um do you guys wind up working with a lot of local businesses actually yes we do now and it's changed a lot over the years so when i first started maybe one out of 20 or 25 companies would be austin based and it's increased over the years, but w- specifically with Title Three, it's blown up. Art, craft, entertainment, Field Guide to Evil, Texas Zebo, Beat Stars, that's four of the nine companies that we put up on the site are all Austin-based companies. And so um, it does make me happy that they're, that they're Austin-based companies. We're not specifically looking for companies in Austin. It's just what's either coming through our network or through our deal flow. And it's, it makes a lot of sense for some of these Austin companies. And so we're happy to support Austin. And, and, it, and it helps that 
I'm here with my team and so we can meet face to face, which is one of the things we like to do and due diligence is, you know, put a face to the name and, and get to know everyone. Yeah. And it's nice to have those local roots, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned possibly how the changes, Slava, you mentioned um, how maybe there might be some changes in how VCs are involved. Um, are there any other shifts that you guys could see happening in this space in the next couple of years? It could be on the deal formation side. Um, it could be on the, the route that companies take to go public or, or anything like that in the, the, the pre-public Well, um, hopefully the, some of the terms of Reg CF will evolve. For example, right now it's a $1 million limit. Hopefully they'll raise to five or ten million dollars, and then there's some other terms like being able to test the waters in advance of actually launching, so you can promote it in advance of starting your raise, or being able to not have each individual investor be uh, individually on the cap table, but rather funnel them into uh, one SPV or one sort of uh, investor uh, all combined. Um, and would that just be for kind of simplicity and, and being able to make it kind of easier to manage? Yeah, for sure, as well as staying within the rules of not going over 2,000 investors as well as it relates to having to go public. But yeah, also for simplicity for management. Yeah, yeah and then I would just to add to that, I think that over the next few years, you'll see Title Three as the first fundraising and then Reg A as a potential second fundraising when the company needs to raise 10, 10 million to 20 or even 50 million and it, that will be more accepted. So, um, well, thank you very much for your time guys. Um, before I let you go, Bill, you are local to Austin. Um, have you been checking out sessions at South by Southwest or were you kind of hiding from the madness? How have you been handling it? So I hid from the madness, the, on on friday i did some mentoring for startups and the accelerator and then i did a panel and that's that's really all i did other than walking through the convention center today a little bit so um interestingly enough um, in 2012 the in the i guess no 2011 the first time I, I attended south by i met slava and he was giving a panel and um and then today we got to do something together so so that was pretty cool and exciting to do so and Slava, have you been able to enjoy your time in Austin or has it been a lot of sessions and meetings and kind of busy stuff? Um, you know, Bill and his team are focused, are based here in Austin. So it's great just to spend the time together. Uh, we did get to walk around in the conference center to see all the showcases. It's really interesting. I've probably have come to South by like seven or eight out of 10 years. Oh, wow. And the evolution has been quite remarkable, quite remarkable, both on the physical hotel growth, but also really just the types of companies. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, things are becoming more sophisticated now at South by. Uh, there's more hardware. It feels more entrepreneurial as opposed to quote unquote, just creative. Um, I am excited to see how the shift is evolving. So. Yeah, and our panel was great this morning. Then we did a Facebook Live, and it's just good energy. Yeah, uh, you guys have been busy. Um, I really appreciate you stopping by and chatting with us. I know you've had a lot going on today. Uh, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus, but South by Southwest week isn't over yet. There's going to be a bonus episode going up this weekend. I sat down with George Hotz, who is working on self-driving car technology over at Kama AI. We're going to play that for you too, so just be on the lookout. You might get a little surprise episode this weekend. As always, if you have any questions or if you just feel like reaching out to the cast, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. 
You can always reach us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. And if you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out all of the Fool shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. People on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks for listening. Fool on. Fool on.